Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Good morning, Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning, Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and I'm doing an interview today that I absolutely loved with Danielle Zanzalari. Make sure that you follow her on all the social media, read all of her pieces. She's got a really cool backstory. I don't want to waste any more of your time. So let's just get into the interview. All right, everyone. My guest today is Danielle Zanzalari. She's an assistant professor of economics at Seton Hall University and a Young Voices contributor. Danielle, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me on. How are you? I'm doing just fine. As we discussed earlier, it's definitely Monday around here, but we're going to push through it. We're going to be just fine. Now, you've got a very interesting backstory that has led you to where you are today. And I think a lot of our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about uh, what you were doing before uh, Seton Hall right now. So um, after grad school, I went and worked at the Federal Reserve as a financial economist. So I got to do research and also work on stress testing which was still, uh, I would say, relatively in its infancy, maybe in the middle of the road kind of a part of stress testing. So I went to lots of banks, you know, the country's largest banks, looked at their models, uh, specifically a lot of deposit models, and critiqued them and talked with the managers working on them to um, basically make sure that they were sound in case kind of a downturn happened. I did that for a little bit and then realized... Um, I'm I'm not really a regulator. That's that's not really uh, who who I am as an economist. I found that the Fed was always kind of looking for new regulation on banks. And what most people don't realize is that the banking industry is very highly regulated, especially after the financial crisis. And so, um, I mean, regulation is fine if uh, there's a reason for it. But I find that we tend to overregulate and not necessarily go back and look at regulations and, and kind of nix them when they need to be. So I moved on to Citigroup after that. So a little bit of the revolving door that kind of happens with government officials. Part of that was because uh, my now husband took a job in Dallas. So we moved 
cities and I took what I could find in relatively what the area that I that I wanted to be in. And I we moved to Texas for also tax reasons as well. And I liked working in Citigroup, did stress testing, but again, um, I'm an economist. And so being in the financial industry for a little bit, uh, which I love finance, I do that's what I do. I, I'm just not into all the bank meetings and all that. I'm much more of a entrepreneurial person. And so that's how I got back kind of into teaching. Okay, so just during that good news, bad news scenario, I wrote down like four questions from just what you said right then. And <laughs> so I've got, I, I think there, we hear about these stress tests. So I want to know a little bit about what people are even looking for when I hear, oh, this, this bank, uh, they, we did the stress test, everything's fine. I heard a little bit about that uh, before we got into what has happened this year in the market. They said everything was fine. That's good. Uh, you talked about not really being a regulator. So I wanted to get some of your thoughts on that. But first, this revolving door. Now, tell me about how this, does a revolving door just happen because these uh, these businesses, they need someone that knows the regulations, like they need someone to come in that, that knows about all the hurdles they have to go through? Or is there, you know, everyone else attributes some type of um, malicious, terrible intent, uh, but is it just getting around those regulations? I just think it makes you much more valuable for a private firm. So you kind of know how the inside operates and some of the things they're looking for. Um, as a government employee, you're typically bound by non-disclosure rules for certain things. So, um, you know, while I couldn't tell my private firm some of the things that I did at the Fed, I, I also helped create the program that evaluated some of these models, right? So I know exactly what they're looking for because I was the one who designed the criteria. Um, so I think that's definitely particularly helpful. Actually, in fact, when I went to the private firm, I actually was not working within the kind of subfield that I was in at the Fed. So it was actually different. I was looking at the wholesale and lending business, which is a lot of commercial loans, industrial loans. And on um, at the Fed, I was doing much more revenue deposits. So it, it was a little bit different, some of the models I was looking at, but they I still knew people. So we'd still be in meetings with people that were my former colleagues. And I still have a great relationship with a lot of people who work at the Fed. I think that there are excellent people who work there. I just think that it's still a government. It's a quasi-public institution, right? They're, they're not completely a public institution, but they're not a private institution. But they definitely sometimes run much more like government institution. I wanted to get some of your thoughts on the regulations. Uh, we talked. You talked a little bit about the financial uh, crisis in 2008. Now, from what I heard, now I just heard this uh, through people, mainly on Twitter, some experts on Twitter, I heard that this was unfettered capitalism and a lack of banking regulation, that we have a very unregulated banking system. And that is what led to that whole crisis. As someone who has worked in this area, would you say that we have a very unregulated, unfettered, capitalistic banking system? Um, absolutely not. I am completely on the other side, which thinks that regulation causes these unintended consequences. It causes people to kind of shift around and create new products uh, that that can make you money. And so, I mean, you can kind of see this now too with the mortgage industry after the financial crisis. A lot of big firms don't even issue mortgages anymore because it's too costly to comply with the regulation. They don't make enough to the bottom line to give you know, regular people mortgages to jump through all the hoops. Um, and so while I guess the mortgage industry is uh, what you consider like a lot safer, 
it's also a lot less profitable. So you're not getting banks doing the traditional things that they always were doing for hundreds of years, which is loans to basic everyday people, small business loans, mortgages. Now, if these big banks are doing mortgages, how are they adding to their bottom line? Well, it's doing a lot more creative, high-risk, high-reward things, um, much more on the trading and investment side of business as opposed to the traditional way we think about banks, which is loaning to people. Just a side note. So I, I want to disclose I have a stock market trading course. I have people that join me live every single morning and we trade in the market. I tell them what's going on. So uh, just so you're aware of uh, some of where I'm coming from. Are we in the financial crisis type situation that we were in in 2008, or is this just an inflation supply and demand imbalance situation that's uh, very much different from the 2008 crisis? Uh, I think it's a different time period. A lot of this is supply driven that our supply chain is is lagging. Um, you're seeing high prices, which stif- you know stiffens or stifles demand, um, so to speak. I'm an avid trader too. I do a lot of my work in the personal finance space, actually. Um, so I have lesson plans around the country for high school students to learn personal finance, investing and so forth. So I love, we could talk about this a whole nother (laughs) time, but I actually think we're actually in a great time to kind of buy in, um, at low levels as they're kind of the resetting the market over the last year. Um, and I, but I'm a long-term investor, right? So I think that there's an opportunity here, um, to, to still invest. Yeah, we we do the same thing. We separate out. So I run, I'm running my own IRA. So when I'm talking to people, I'm saying, okay, this is my IRA. I've got a lot of time left on this. I've been buying in throughout this entire downturn. I I happen to think we got maybe one more little leg lower and then we can we can head back up. Maybe not. And uh, but then I've also got the more short term things that we talk about. Like you said, we could probably do a whole episode on all of that. But we could transition into the the article. Uh, it's uh, the title is GOP must reduce the barriers to investing uh, by the poor and middle class. Now I uh, looked into investing into a product I was interested in recently, and I I found out that I was not in fact an accredited investor, and that is what this deals with quite a bit. So if you could uh, explain to everyone what this article is covering. Yes. So there is a rule with the SEC that says if you make under $200,000 a year or $300,000 with your spouse or have a net worth under a million, not counting your you know primary residence, or you're not this uh, uh, licensed financial professional that has a Series 7, 65, or 82 license, you cannot invest in certain things. Those certain things are really only available to what I would say the the wealthy. Um, and and the, the rationale for the SEC is that they want to, and this is kind of verbatim, they want to ensure that all participating investors are financially sophisticated and able to fend for themselves or sustain the risk of loss. So my article is about trying to make investing more accessible to people. And some of these opportunities are getting into startups getting into real estate deals off the ground. There's lots of kind of these crowdfunding sources where they can raise money to invest in a hotel or apartment complex that are a hundred million dollars, right? Most people don't have a hundred million dollars to go buy in a huge apartment complex in Houston, but you might be able to contribute $20,000 to this and, and, and own a little bit and generate pretty good returns, 15, 20% returns, but you are not able to, because you do not meet the SEC's criteria. And so there's discussion that, um, was circulated with some Republicans that they want to kind of revisit this. 
And uh, I wrote the article that actually came out on election day saying that if Republicans can either take control of Congress or even particularly one of the one of the um, parts of Congress, that maybe they can push this along. As someone that is uh, a strong believer that everybody should invest, I want people to have the most opportunity to do that. And and that's what I'm kind of you know asking for in this article that we really need to consider this. Yeah, when you uh, you even hear people say, uh, I think about lines from movies. Oh, how'd you get so wealthy? Well, I got in early on this uh, on this thing, and the IPO hit the market. It just skyrocketed. You know, well, by the time something IPOs these days, I know you're talking about a lot about real estate, but even by the time something IPOs these days, it's way up from where all the early investors got in, and you just don't have the ability to even get in on that. What I was wondering is uh, the the SEC. Of course, this is to protect people like me, uh, because uh, we don't have the financial literacy to make these types of decisions. Is Are they really protecting me or are they protecting the people that are allowed to make those financial decisions? What would your guess be? I mean, that's that's a really hard question. I don't know what their intent is, <laughs> but but the wording is that they want to to all investors to be financially sophisticated. Their version of financially sophisticated means wealthy. Um, it doesn't mean actually financially knowledgeable. And so their criteria is that you can make a lot of money. Well, I mean, if you're in if you're in software engineering, you could be 22 years old, making this over $200,000 because you're an expert engineer. So you're a great engineer, but who says you're financially sophisticated that someone who's maybe 40 years old making, let's say, $180,000 a year, so a great salary, but not over the $200,000 threshold. They've obviously managed a budget till they're 40. They're, they're still alive. They're living, right? <laughs> and they're considered kind of financially stupid. And I, I I don't like this definition. And I think that really what the SEC should do is focus, if they really care about educating people, then do that. Educate people. They have some things on the SEC's website that has changed over the last year on the education piece. But they are very simple. I would not call it financially sophisticated. I would call it personal finance 101 for middle schoolers. And while that's still good, I think they really, if they really care about educating people, that's where they need to go. So part of this feels a little um, superficial. It, it sounds good. It sounds like, hey, we really care about you. And you hear this all the time from the government, like, we care about you. But really, who are they protecting here? Because as you kind of mentioned, there's people who benefit and those are the wealthy. And so the wealthy get wealthier and the poor middle class don't have these same opportunities. I'm all I'm kind of saying is give people the opportunity to do these sorts of things. Uh, I mean, that's a risk that they take. And right now, because of access to investing, people can take risk of like crypto, right? You can go on Robinhood and invest in crypto really easily. Uh, you could do it with $20,000. You could do it with a dollar. I would say that's far riskier than investing in a real estate deal with lots of forms, right? They're still, they're still guided. All of these investments are still guided by anti-fraud protections. You can't lie to investors. You can't do all of these things. So there's all this documentation about investing like in a real estate deal, which I would say is arguably way safer than cryptocurrency. Yet you can invest in cryptocurrency, but you can't invest in um, you know, real estate deals. I'll give you a, a personal story also about the SEC protecting you. So I started trading about eight years ago when I was uh, like a lot of young investors interested in day trading because that's where all the money's at, right? Day trading, yeah, a huge probability of success with day trading. I'm being sarcastic there. Uh, but uh, you got to have, you know, the PDT rule. So you got $25,000 in an account to be able to take 
uh, one of the day trades, or you can just take your three trades and a rolling five day period. Well, I need to take, you know, as a person who had never traded before, I probably was going to need 20 to 30 trades a day uh, <laughs> to be able to make that work. So what did I do? Yeah. What did I do? Uh, instead of coming in with like my 500 bucks, I would have, I worked really hard and saved up 30 K to start an account uh, while never trading before. And so I could finally start day trading. And you can imagine how that went. I don't really have to tell you how that went, but boy, <laughs> do I wish, well, now listen, I still have the personal responsibility. I should have used a simulated trading account. I uh, should have learned more with that first account, all that stuff, you know, it's still responsibility on me, but man, I wish I could have lost half of a $500 investment <laughs> instead. Now that rule you could say protects people uh, that don't have the money to come in and do the day trading or it gets inexperienced people to put a whole lot more money in than what they should and end up giving all of it away. What do you think? <laughs> I agree. There's unintended consequences of a lot of government regulation. So I completely agree here. And and with this accredited rule specifically, you could actually, you know, when I invest in real estate, actually real estate deal that I did, because my husband and I are accredited investors, um, which I'll be quite honest, until I started doing this type of investing, I didn't even really know nor care about the accredited rule until I found out, wait, I have to be certified. Wait, do I qualify? And we actually got a tax write-off from owning part of a hotel because of the depreciation rules. So not only do I get the typical 3,000 um, tax loss harvesting rule that every you know investor gets, I can benefit even more than other people because we can write off uh, real estate with some tax breaks. And I mean, that certainly helps me out. And that comes at the expense of not, you know, poor middle class, uh, not getting those particular opportunities. And I just think that's really wrong. And uh, as someone that grew up uh, in, in a lower middle class, you know, family, having access to these wealth building opportunities can actually really change your life. And I find it very unfair that the SEC says that investors are unsophisticated if you're lower middle class, but really it's the SEC who's unsophisticated in how they're thinking about this. Now, is there a way, because, you know, I grew up, I grew up very poor also, and I'm just thinking about, well, what could I have done to get in on some real estate? Are there ways for people to pull together their money and buy parts? You know, you mentioned a $25,000 investment with this uh, crowd street, I think is what it was. Well, I mm -hmm. might not even have 25K to put in, but I might have 25 friends and maybe we could get that chunk. Are there, are there ways for people to do that, even if you don't qualify as an accredited investor? Um, that's a great question. Not in, you can't circumvent this rule for like that platform, for example, but there are REITs. Um, I'm a big advocate of REITs to get involved in real estate. So that's basically like a real estate mutual fund, essentially. I'm, I'm leaving out some details here, but you know, a company that specializes in real estate will buy properties, whether that's commercial properties, retail properties, whether that's single family homes, hotels, they'll buy that and then they'll pay out dividends to you. And it's like a, you could trade it like a stock. And those mm -hmm. those REIT prices could be $50, $100. So you could buy one share of that. There's other platforms like Fundrise, which will invest in like small homes. You can't necessarily pick which home you're investing in. It's, it, it is basically run like a REIT. And so you don't need to be accredited to do that. 
But the bigger deals, these syndicates. So if you see like this big, massive apartment complex being put up, you go to any city, there's apartment complexes anywhere. These are $100, $200 million investments. Who owns them? Well, apparently not poor middle-class people can't even get a sliver of them because you have to be an accredited investor. Sometimes these are called syndicate deals. Uh, And, you know, luckily because of how much technology has changed, we everyday people have access to this and buying this online. Like the hotel I own is actually in Dallas, my former, my former um, place. So I own like a small part of that. Um, I, we put $25,000 in that deal, which happens to be the minimum. But actually right now we're going through underwriting another particular deal. And that's for some office space in Miami. So I'm going to own part of an office space in Miami, like some rich people do some really rich people, you know, well beyond what I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, a faculty member at a college. So I, I have a limit. I, I definitely did better in the private sector, but um, I have access to that, that other people don't have. And, uh, and particularly in the stock market right now, which we know is doing terrible this year, uh, this is going to provide me much better returns than what I could get relatively to other people. And like I said, while I benefit, I think that the government really needs to update the rules and be much more inclusive. And and the thing is about the article I mentioned, Republicans taking control. It's not that the Republicans and Democrats tend to have differences a lot of times between the amount of regulation they like, but um, the Republicans, there have been some Republicans that have been much more in favor of uh, a little bit more financial freedom a little bit with how people can invest. But I'm really surprised because the Biden administration has wanted to be more inclusive. They they say they want to reduce income inequality quite often. Well, this is a way to do this, yet that's not really been a talking point for Democrats. That's the thing that I was actually about to ask you about. We hear so much of this talk about income inequality, wealth inequality, and it's little things like this where you talk about owning, you know, you talked about just owning a sliver of this hotel deal that, that people, it would be great if they were able to get in on that. And they can't. And it's and it's not just because uh, of the rich, although we could argue that maybe they control what the SEC uh, decides to put out for regulation. But it's a it's an it's a regulation that is stopping people from being able to do that. And that can get blamed on capitalism, on free markets, on the wealthy, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, there's a government roadblock to people just say like me jumping in on some kind of a hotel deal. And I do, I do think that the Republicans would be more open to uh, to more financial freedom. I've got bones to pick with both of the parties, so I, I don't hang my hat on either one of them. But yeah, you did talk about uh, Representative Patrick McHenry having a plan mm-hmm. that was not perfect, but but better. Uh, what's what's in that? Um, offhand, I I I can't tell you. Uh, I, I, I can't remember seeing it when I researched it. It wasn't ideal, which is saying like, Hey, let anybody become a, an accredited investor, but it was making it a little bit better for some middle-class people. Um, anyone the, who invests 10% from, like, of their annual income, 10% of their annual income and in, or net assets, uh, was the, yeah. Was the so it, it was a little bit better, but one of the things that I, I didn't actually talk about the article, but since you're talking about your IRA, I think this is pertinent to probably some of your listeners that if you have like a Roth IRA, right. Or, or even a regular IRA, but let's stick with the Roth. Um, a lot of these investments you can make within a Roth IRA. So if you have a self-directed Roth IRA, you can make these deals 
and then not have to pay taxes on all those earning. And so it's not like I know there's for a lot of these platforms, some of these threshold of $25,000, which is not a small sum of money for an investment. But if you have a Roth IRA that you've been contributing to, and now let's just say you're, let's say you've been contributing about 5,000, just keep it simple, $5,000 for 10 years. You've now put in about, assuming no returns, $50,000. You can actually afford these for your retirement, invest in these types of deals pretty easily, right? And you're not allowed to do that. So it's not just about, okay, being able to save side money. It's about your IRA is not letting you do these deals too. And so I'd like to see some of that, um, the particular senator's uh, proposal is more inclusive. So I'm like, yes, it's going in the right direction, but it's not all the way there. I think when you say, okay, we don't trust you SEC that, you know, just do it to anybody, then someone's going to blame that particular politician that they're not protecting consumers, they're not protecting investors. Um, But then it gets back to the, you know, quintessential question of, is it the government's role to protect people from themselves? And uh, I'm an economist, so (laughs) I much more believe in personal freedom and choices than having my choices reduced by the government. I uh, we completely agree on that. Do you think now this is a left field? We haven't talked about this yet at all. Are they about to come in and protect people from the cryptocurrency market? Uh, that's been a bit of a mess. I, so I, I kind of when I said, "Oh, they let people, uh, you know, invest in crypto." I think a part of the reason is the government's slow, so they mm-hmm. let them now. Um, but I mean, if you care about financially sophistication, then there should be no way they allow people to do cryptocurrency. To be clear. I'm not saying that they should not allow people to do this, but if you're going to make this rule, there's certainly an industry which seems like there needs to be a level of financial sophistication. I am, I was an investor in crypto. I've gotten out of it. Um, I've studied this. I have lots of colleagues that you know do the research on this. I still get very confused with some of these cryptocurrencies. And so if I do, I'm sure the high school student investing in crypto likely does too. I think they're going to have massive regulations come down the cryptocurrency in- industry. Massive. The scary part about that is, uh, I also, I honestly, I just don't get, I don't get the whole thing. I've tried a lot. I do not completely understand this. I know how to look at a chart and do technical analysis on it, but I don't understand the underlying one bit. And uh, we'll just yeah, really admit that. Supply. I don't. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I I understand that you know there's a fixed uh, there there's a there's a fixed amount of supply with Bitcoin or there's a a, a fixed uh, dilution I guess with it, uh, however whatever much it is I understand that. The other thing is people are uh, upset that it hasn't just skyrocketed back up to sixty or seventy or whatever. If you want it to be a currency, actually when it just sat there around twenty for like two months, that was actually really good for a currency to stay stable like that for a long time. If you actually care about it to have utility as a currency, you don't want it fluctuating from 20 to 60 to 40 to 80 because no one's going to want to keep their bank account in, in cryptocurrency at that time. You need it to be stable. And so I don't understand what people want from it. Do they want it to be a currency that we use as an alternative or do they just want a speculative asset that they can invest in? Which is it? Uh, because I, I can't get mad about it staying stable for a long time. That's pretty good for a currency, in my a opinion. Great, that's a great question. That's a great way to say it. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I can actually say it better than you. Is it a currency? Because <laughs> st- stability is what you want. Because how do you make contracts and future contracts from even just a business to to, to buying something overseas when the price is going to fluctuate so rapidly? 
or is it an investment? And then the investment part of it is everything comes down to demand and supply. What is the demand for the product? And I still cannot figure that out. And the supply, while there's this fixed intervals for some of them, not all of them, that's also questionable too. Um, but this demand piece, I, it's still so unclear. No one seems to consistently get it right. It's not like, hey, you have a CPG company that's you know producing toilet paper. Well, it's very clear the demand for toilet paper. It's very clear also the stuff that goes into the supply. And so if uh, an input's you know affected, it's going to affect the supply. It's just so unclear with cryptocurrency. And so while I said I invested in it, it was a very small percent of my wealth, and it was very speculative. It was very, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to get into this game. Let's see where it goes. I could tell you I lost half of that investment. <laughs> um, but again, it wasn't a big part of my wealth, so I'm not. I sleep very well at night. It's not a problem. But I basically look like I went, it feels like I went to Vegas and and put my money on red and black. And it, you know, I chose red, it chose black. There you go. <laughs> so as someone who uh, doesn't really like calling for regulation at all, of course, with what just happened with FTX and we had some others go down, a lot of people are saying we got to regulate this market. All the big investors coming out saying we got to regulate. And you talked about doing the stress test. Well, maybe some stress tests would have been uh, beneficial in this scenario. So is that what this market needs? Do we need government regulation? Oh, that's a great question. Well, first, I would say there is regulation to protect investors. It's called fraud. Um, mm -hmm. And that's very clearly spelled out. I don't see how Sam Bankman Freed uh, does not go to jail. If he doesn't, that seems horrible. But, you know, he, lots of people get off of financial crimes that are very wealthy and politically connected. So I'd really like to see that play out. But, I mean, he has two lawyers for parents, so we'll see. <laughs> but I, I would say the regulation already exists to protect investors. You can't defraud investors. That's illegal. Um, the accounting systems where he was able to move money. I mean, I think that goes to show you how advanced some, some tech is and how, how smart some people are. And there's no way government's going to catch up to that. Government moves at the pace of a snail in, in a lot of ways. And so they're years behind on regulating crypto. And, you know, some regulation to ensure that there's no fraud is, is always great. You don't want it to fraud customers. You don't, you need information to be, um, plentiful. And if that's not there, that's right. You need some regulation for that, but I don't think you need regulation to protect, you know, customers from themselves. And that's not what's happening here. It's not like the investor, I mean, if they mispriced uh, the risk of this particular asset, that's fine, but there's a fraud component there. And that's, that's, uh, that's already protected. There's also, I guess, uh, I know we're, we're uh, coming up on time here, but there's also the aspect of the free market a market should be able to help with this as well. What I what I would hope is that people learn, okay, maybe I need to know more about a business before putting all of my money into it. Uh, maybe I need to make sure that someone has gone through their books. Well, they said their books are fine. Who is it that went through their books? Are they a person that I trust that went through and they, they have a reputable brand that would be destroyed if it turned out to be wrong? I do see that the market could solve this problem and that people could learn that they need to have more information before putting a lot of money into these companies, it just might take some people getting burned, unfortunately, uh, before that happens. So uh, I know that we're up on time here. Uh, I wanna make sure you tell everyone where they can go to follow you, anything else that you're writing or speaking, anything like that, where do they go? 
So the best way to follow me and connect with me, I would just say it's probably Twitter, uh, D Zancelari. So first initial, last name. Uh, that's a great play, place to follow me. I'm happy to interact with you there. I'm on a bunch of other places, but that's probably the easiest. I work in personal finance and, and bank regulation. So I'm always doing research on those kind of areas. I'm also from New Jersey. So I tend to now be involved with a lot of New Jersey policy trying to fix a lot of the taxes, the high level of taxes here and what we get for those. So you'll see me writing on that quite a bit too. Um, I moved back here to be closer to family, uh, but I am I'm not, I did not move here because necessarily the politics. <laughs> Just want to get that disclaimer out there. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone knows. Uh, and, and I actually have an op-ed that might be coming out um, this week or next week about that, how people optimize on location, not just for taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Absolutely. Well, I re I love this conversation. I think we could probably go for a couple more hours. So we're going to have to make sure you come back on again and talk sometime soon. Danielle, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Love to come back on. 